In a poll that was conducted earlier this year, researchers found that over half of Americans believe that the top 1% of the wealthiest Americans control the United States government. Another poll that was done back during the 2016 election found that again, over 50% of Americans believe in at least one conspiracy theory. With stats like that, it's easy to understand why some researchers have dubbed this the golden age of conspiracy theories. But why is that? What makes a conspiracy theory so attractive? And why now? Well, theologian Albert Moeller argues that one of the reasons conspiracy theories are attractive to us is because they help fill in the gaps of what we don't know. When we can't connect why this happened or why that happened, he says, conspiracy theories help us tie it all together. And that's very emotionally satisfying. Moeller goes on to argue that this kind of emotional satisfaction, it's especially attractive to us as Christians because our theology tells us that there's actually someone out there who really is plotting evil. And of course, that's the real danger of these kinds of theories, right? They play on this speculative fear that we all have of what the wicked might be able to accomplish with unchecked power and unchecked wealth. And so in a year marked with threats of war and global pandemic, sweeping government restrictions, economic collapse, social unrest, in a tumultuous presidential election, we can hardly be surprised that so many Americans are scared, confused, hurting, and looking for someone to blame. But friends, is this the kind of comfort and instruction that scripture gives us in times of trouble? When the wicked seem to have all the power and all the wealth and all the influence, what are we supposed to do? Does comfort really lie in our ability to search out and piece together and thwart the nefarious plans of those with wealth and power? And if not, what comfort do we have that such people will be stopped? Well, our text this evening offers us an answer to these very questions. So turn with me to Psalm 49. In the first few verses of this psalm, the author taps into the universal nature of this problem, and he calls all of us, both rich and poor, to listen to his words of wisdom. And as we read, we see that the psalmist has something to teach us about the temptation to trust in the power that wealth affords, as well as the temptation to fear those with wealth and what they can accomplish. And to help answer our concern, our text this evening, in our text this evening, the psalmist draws our attention to the hard reality of the limits of what riches can accomplish. Read along with me. Verse 7, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. You see, in the face of this temptation to fear the power and the wealth of the wicked, the psalmist finds comfort not in discovering or, cons- or thwarting a conspiracy, but in the fact that no one, no matter how rich they are, will ultimately be able to redeem themselves or anyone else from the inevitability of death. Friends, this is a sobering thing to consider. But I think the main idea of our text is this. No amount of earthly wealth can redeem you from the eternal debt of death that you owe to God. Let me say that one more time. No amount of earthly wealth can redeem you from the eternal debt of death that you owe to God. 
as we consider this verse for the rest of our time together this evening, I want us to see how this idea serves as both a sobering warning and a comfort to all of us. And those two themes are going to serve as sort of our two main points. So you can think warning and comfort. So let's start with warning. As we consider what the psalmist is saying here, I want us to see how this verse serves as a warning to all of us who might be tempted to trust in wealth by reminding us of the limits of what wealth can do. And that's important. We're not typically accustomed to talking about the limits of what money can accomplish, right? Um, In fact, we're much more apt to talk about what money can do for us, about the power of money. Money talks. Follow the money. Money gets things done. Money solves problems. You know, we're familiar with those sentiments. And and in a sense, they're, they're true. Money certainly is powerful. There's no denying that. It can help us accomplish many things, good or bad. When used well, money can be a tremendous source of blessing and aid. With it, we can support the needs of our families, our fellow church members, our neighbors. And of course, money generously given by many of you is what supports and sustains the ministry of this church and many others. So let me be clear. There is nothing inherently evil about money. But the money is not what the psalmist is warning us about. Rather, his words here are a warning to those who arrogantly trust in their money to protect them and even deliver them. And if we're honest, whether we think we have a lot of money or not, relative to someone else, all of us have had moments in our lives where we've trusted in the power of money to save us. Maybe that's a particular temptation for you this year with the loss of a job or cutbacks and hours. Maybe you've felt that firsthand, the anxiety that comes with not having enough money. That's a real thing. But perhaps that tension and that anxiety has become more of a temptation. A temptation to trust in the power of money to protect you. A temptation to wish if you just had a little more money, you'd be okay. But brothers and sisters, if that's you, recognize the psalmist is pulling back the curtain here as a way of warning you and I about the dangers of trusting in money. If you're a Christian here tonight, recognize such a temptation is nothing short of a trap. It's the very same warning that the Apostle Paul gave to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Brothers and sisters, do you see the warning that this text has for us this evening? Trusting in riches will not only fail to deliver us, but it very well may hasten our path to destruction. That's why in verse 14, the psalmist describes those who trust in riches as sheep who are being shepherded by death and to death. And in that way, the psalmist's words here are like a brick wall that soberly reminds us all that the power of money isn't greater than the power of death. Each and every one of us in this room will die at some point. And no matter how much money we've accumulated, 
not one cent of it will be able to help us escape the inevitability of death. And I think this is hard, a little bit hard for us to grasp, especially in this day and age. We, we have a hard time accepting this because in some sense our society is increasingly treating death as, as simply a medical or a technological problem and not a moral problem. But recognize that's not the way the Bible speaks of death. Notice how the psalmist speaks of the inability of money to redeem our lives, not from sickness or old age, but from God. Why is that? Because you see, death is not a medical problem. It's a price you owe to God for the debt of your sin against him. That's why Paul can say in Romans 6.36, the wages of sin is death. Friends, all of us have sinned against a holy and infinite God. He made us in his image. But rather than serve him and give him the honor that he deserves, each one of us has rejected him. Each one of us has turned aside from worshiping him to worship the things that he's made. And in so doing, we have all dishonored the infinite worth of God. And there will come a day in which God will call all of us to account for that. And friends, don't think for a second that any amount of money or power or good deeds that you have accumulated in this life will be able to add up to the infinite debt that you will owe him on that day. As the psalmist says in verse eight, the price of your redemption is too high. You can't pay it. Not because of your worth, but because of God's. Friends, I hope you see the warning in this text. Don't trust in wealth to save you from the debt of death that you owe to God. It won't help you. Even if you had all the money in the world, the honor of God is worth infinitely more, which means that you and I will never be able to redeem ourselves or anyone else from the debt of death that we owe to God. So what do we do then? What hope do we have? If riches can't save us, then what can? Is there any hope for us? Well, as I said, I think this text serves as a warning, but I also think it serves as a comfort to us. And that brings, our last to our, brings us to our last section. I know this is a hard and a sobering text, but before you leave tonight, I want you to see that there is comfort here. And that comfort comes in two forms. First, I want you to see how this text points us forward to a hope that's bigger than the inevitability of death itself because it points us forward to the only one who is able to redeem us from the power of death, to the only one who will one day swallow up death and victory, to the one who has paid the infinite debt that you and I owe to God. And that one is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. You see, the psalmist is right. No mere man can pay the debt that you and I owe. And as the psalmist alludes to in verse 15, only God can redeem our lives from the power of death because only an infinite and holy God can satisfy the infinite debt that we owe to God. But friends, the good news is that's precisely why Jesus came. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And how did he do that? By living the perfect life that you and I have not and cannot live by honoring his father perfectly, 
by dying the death that you and I deserve, suffering under the infinite weight of the wrath of God to pay the infinite debt that you and I owe. And finally, by being raised from the dead, you see his resurrection, it's proof that the debt is paid. And if you're here with us tonight and you have been trusting in something other than Jesus to save you from death, let me implore you to stop. Stop trusting in your wealth or your accomplishments or your power. Instead, trust in the only one who can pay your ransom. Trust in Christ, friends. Trust in him and him alone. Finally, this text serves as a comfort to those of us who are tempted to fear the power of the wealth of the wicked by reminding us to take solace in the inevitability of their judgment before God. You see, that's really the main goal of the psalmist here. It's the main thing he wants to teach us. In essence, his instruction to us here is that we shouldn't fear the wealth of the wicked because all of their wealth, all of their power, it won't be enough to save them from the judgment of death. In other words, the psalmist is saying to us, why are you afraid of the wicked? What are you afraid of? Don't you know that God will one day put an end to their wickedness and wipe away all their wealth and all their power? And friends, if that's true, if we really believe that, then it should radically transform the way we engage with others, especially when it comes to something like politics. The truth of this verse ought to embolden us to to engage with others, not in a way that's defensive or divisive, but in a way that demonstrates a kind of fearlessness and peace in the face of those we disagree with. So I wonder, what do you sound like when you talk with other members of this church? What do you sound like when you talk with your friends, your neighbors, your families, when you're on social media? Do you sound like someone who fears what the wicked can accomplish if they gain more wealth and power? Do you sound anxious, maybe even angry? Worse yet, are you letting such fears drive you to false comforts like partisan politics or maybe even a conspiracy theory? Or maybe you've just checked out. Maybe you've just let yourself become so overwhelmed with all the misinformation and unrest and polarization that you just feel numb. But brothers and sisters, I think one of the major implications of this verse for us is we don't have to do that. We can engage, but we can engage with confidence. We can be the kind of people who are able to stand outside of it all, unshaken and at peace with clear eyes fixed on Christ. Friends, I hope you see the warning and the comfort that this text has for us this evening. I hope you take the words of the psalmist seriously. I hope you see now the foolishness of trusting in wealth and the foolishness of fearing those who do. And I hope you see the comfort in trusting in a redemption that comes not from man or money, but from God. So pray with me.